Hello, welcome to some Derp's Talk About Games. I'm your co-host, Mango. And I am your co-host, Buddy. And today we're going to talk a little bit about Shades of Morality in video games. But before we do that, Buddy, why don't you tell the folks what it is we do on this podcast? On this podcast, we like to talk about games. And um, I want to say that a handy article showed up on the discourse. Uh, but, I. so can I just ask... So, oh, okay, let's just, let's just, let's, let's take it one step at a time. An article uh, came out on Polygon today with the headline uh, that reads, Games need to return to black and white morality. Tales of Good versus Evil are more relevant than ever by Ki-Hoon Chan. Um, I read this article more or less when it first came out because it just like popped up on my feed and I was like, oh, I'm like, I'm interested in this. And I, and I read it and then I came back like two hours later and apparently everybody's, like, dunking on this, dunking on this article. Um, for, I guess, having a shitty headline uh, for an opinion piece or whatever, which I guess I, I guess I understand. Where did, how did you, like, read it? Uh, so, I disagree a bit with the premise, but I think that's more to do with, like, specific implications later in the article. So, like, kind of, like, at a 10,000-foot level, I have no problem with a variety of kind of shades of stories in video games, right? You can have your nice nuanced stories and you can have your very black and white stories. As long as the podcast will know, I am a huge fan of the Mario Brothers series of games and you don't get much more black and white than that. Um, but I think the other side of this is that um, there are the, 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 the potential risk with a kind of black and white morality is, is in becoming kind of propaganda for any of a variety of viewpoints. And uh, I worry about that. Um, and I thought that... Uh, I, I thought that the the article didn't address that enough, if that makes sense. I guess... Yeah, I, de- I guess I definitely understand that. Because in a certain sense, I almost sort of feel like I read a different article than other people. Because, like, I think I agree with that take. Um, and my thing is, like, a little less about... In a certain sense, I think I kind of misinterpreted the article, right? Like, it literally says, Tales of Good versus Evil are more relevant than ever. Whereas what I'm really interested in is, like, the ways in which our culture's storytelling has kind of, like, evolved, right? Sure. Um, there's actually a pretty good episode of Lindsay Ellis's YouTube series where she talks about, are Disney villains going extinct? Where she compares Disney villains from kind of, like, the early 90s, right? Your Jafars, your Ursulas... Uh, your Professor Radigans uh, from the Great Mouse Detective, who are mostly just evil for evil's sake. You know, that's they want power, money. They are they like being cruel and bad and are unsympathetic and they don't care about other people and they just you know like and they move on. That's fine. To the more recent iteration of Disney villains, where you have. Um, character, you know, like Elsa was originally written to be the villain for what would eventually become Frozen. Um, you have in Disney's Moana a complete reversal where the big bad villain turns out to just be like a corrupted good guy. Um, and you have this kind of stuff all like all over the place, right? Like there are just fewer and fewer of the sort of cut and dry, this is a bad guy villains. And you have more and more sorts of... Um, 
you know, like sympathetic portrayals of these characters, which I think creates that graying effect, right? Because it isn't a situation where you are looking at this this character and you're saying he is bad definitionally. You are now looking at this character and you are saying, oh, I get where he's coming from, right? Does that make sense? Yeah, and and I think along with this, you also have a more graying of the heroes as well, right? Like yeah, and uh, the, exactly that that's the flip side, right? Because you also now have things where the heroes are not quite punished, but like questioned and challenged in more robust ways than you might have in in like other stories. Uh, like a good example of this, I think, is Black Panther, right? Where you have T'Challa who is explicitly, like, wrong in the way that he is, you know, like, he believes in the tradition of isolationism and keeping people out of, like, Wakanda or whatever, um, and he is specifically, like, wrong about that thing, or in, in, you know, most of the other Marvel movies, I talk about this in a lot of the Marvel movies, where the heroes kind of start in this place of, like, selfishness and kind of grow into a sort of selflessness, right? Um, but even in that, like, everyone kind of agrees that Tony Stark is still kind of like, you know, like an egotistical piece right. of shit. He just, like, does the right thing a lot of the time, right? Um, which is different than Christopher Reeve's Superman. I mean, Superman is even, even an even better example of that, right? Like, I would maintain that Henry Cavill's Superman in Man of Steel is definitionally, fundamentally, like, good. He is always trying to do good and do right by other people but he also lets his dad die and he thinks that that's the right decision at the time and it's one that fills him with regret and everything like that but like that's a very different version of superman than the version of superman that is catching lois lane as she falls from a helicopter yeah and and i, I think like you know you, you can make the like the 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 kind of point there that he, he it's not that he yeah like I, I think i think you're right right like that that he that is his his fault. There is like he listens to his dad too much, maybe, which is like a weird way to put it. But um, like the, the like the, like Superman's faults in, in Man of Steel aren't so much um, him being uh, like him doing evil, which is like or like him him like being tempted by evil. I guess is the right way to put it, or being an antihero, right? Like which is like your classic yeah. kind of Wolverine, um, which is funny because the latest Wolverine movie has him kind of softening, you know, in uh, in Logan. Um, yeah. Well, yeah, and, and that is, like, one of those interesting... Because, like, this is the typical, like, when we talk about superhero movies, it is very typically that selfish-to-selfless sort of journey, right? Where you have somebody who is selfishly motivated, who, like, learns to be the the hero, who sacrifices himself for, like, other people. Superman is always willing to do that in Man of Steel, his character arc is in his trust of humanity because of his being raised by Jonathan Kent. He was raised not to trust people and his arc in the film is to trust someone or not someone, but like humanity as a whole, um, which is how he establishes kind of like the super, you know, like this, the, the Superman persona and starts saving people in a very like big public way. Um, but like, th this is all part of that same sort of like graying, you know, like graying morality thing. Um, but one of the things, and this is part of what I liked about the article is that it got me thinking on this sort of level. Um, but one of the things that I do find really interesting about it is like, I think I disagree with the premise that black and white stories are less nuanced than gray stories. If we were to like put them in those sorts of terms, right? Um, and that, that's a little bit of, um, you know, like, we think in those kinds of terms, but, like, it's not quite true, and it misunderstands the way that we approach kind of, like, characters, their motivations, and, like, stories um, in general by kind of, like, assigning them a certain value on, like, the morality scale, if that makes sense. Um, 
So, for instance, you know, I think there are a lot of stories that have a very straightforward kind of like good versus evil, good guy, you know, like good guy, bad guy kind of um, conflict without necessarily. And so it is still in that like black and white, like more moral vein, if that makes sense. Um, but without losing any of like the the nuances to what makes that work. Um, and the example I, I've, I'm going to here is like Mass Effect, right? Where you have Commander Shepard, who is always doing the right thing, right? And and is always like the good guy. And the Reapers, and the guys who work for the Reapers, who are always kind of like definitionally, right? Like the bad guys. But there is a lot of exploration in the Renegade Paragon system of, well, what, you know, like, what does that look like? Like a Renegade Shepard is a different version in that anti-hero vein of a good guy than a paragon shepherd and so that is just and that paragon shepherd is just as nuanced as that renegade shepherd does that make sense to me? does that make sense uh yeah uh so i think i think this like highlights maybe one of the, the weirder things about video games is that like i don't think it's as cut and dry as you know like good versus evil on, on some of like the kind of like more moment to moment gameplay of uh Mass Effect, right? Like the, yeah, okay, like, yeah, like the individual sure. stories. And I, I think this is like kind of like a unique thing about video games. Um, like I'm, I'm thinking of even analogies to like serialized TV shows. I'm not sure it quite does. Um, where like you basically have like, even though like kind of like the outer shell story is very kind of like playing good versus evil um, and playing not in the pejorative sense, just kind of like very straightforwardly good versus evil. Um but, like, the individual side stories along the way have very much kind of, like, um, very nuanced gray uh, kind of uh, facets to them, right? Like, uh, Okay, yeah, so I definitely agree with that, but I want to put a pin in that because it's something that I want to come back to a little bit okay. later. I guess really what I'm, what, I'm, what I'm talking about is, like, okay, so let's – Paragon Shepard is a straightforward, like, black and white – he's the white in that good guy – and a, I don't really love those terms. Good versus evil, right? Good guy. And uh, Renegade Shepard is the the morally gray, right? Anti-hero guy. And those two guys, like, exist in the same sort of game right next to each other, right? But I would argue that the Paragon Shepard has just as much, like, interesting character stuff and nuance as the Renegade Shepard. Like, they're, neither of those is, like, more, quote-unquote, nuanced than the other. Even though we do typically think that, like, graying morality introduces nuance in a world where, you know, like, where it typically doesn't sort of exist. Um, and I think it kind of comes from, like, a history thing. Like, when we think of classical stories, we think of stories that don't have a lot of nuance, and they tend to have this very basic good and evil binary, you know, sort of, like, morality to them, right? Um, and as we have gotten more advanced as storytellers, we have gotten better at doing that that binary morality, but we have also gotten more interested in doing the gray morality stuff, right? Like the in-between mixed sort of level stuff. And therefore, we kind of correlate those two things, even though I wouldn't say that they are causally related. Do you, do you agree with that principle? Yes, but maybe from like the opposite direction a little bit. Like, I think that there's there's just as much on the other side, which is like you assume that like a grade character is more nuanced morally. And I don't think a lot of them like I think a lot of them are a little bit less nuanced than like you kind of assume, right? Mm -hmm. Like, oh, well, interesting. Like, I see what you mean. Right, like like just kind of thinking of this Mass Effect frame, right? Like, 
uh, we could go back and forth, but I don't know if, like, the morality of Renegade Shepherd is actually, like, a straight Renegade Shepherd is actually that nuanced, right? Like, um, and, like, the, the other one that comes to mind is, like, say, Deadpool, right? Like, Deadpool is very much kind of like an anti-hero gray morality, but his morality isn't all that nuanced, right? He's just kind of, like, goofy goofs. Um, yeah, like, and, you know, in a lot of ways, like, like the Punisher, for instance, the Punisher probably has a more basic and simplified morality than someone like Spider-Man does, right? right. Spider-Man is obviously a paragon. There's nothing anti-hero about Spider-Man. Um, and and the Punisher is kind of the definitional, right? Like, he is the, the core example of an anti-hero for a lot of folks, right? Um, but I think that the moral questions that Spider-Man stories ask and answer are a lot more complicated and intricate than the moral stories that Punisher, the, the moral questions that Punisher stories ask and answer. Yeah, especially in kind of like their archetypal story, right? Like, I, yeah. I think they're, I, as I, I haven't read a ton of Punisher, but I understand that Punisher can be a complex character, but at least kind of like the, uh, the image of Punisher as projected out into the world would indicate that he's a very simple character, right? Like, he's... Yeah, know. and and it's, and, you know, it's, it is one of those things where, in a certain sense, I'm trying to decouple everything, right? Right. Like, I think you can have complicated... It's sort of in the Matrix, right? Like, you can have a complicated Paragon character at the same time that you can have a complicated Renegade character, and you can have a simple Renegade character and a simple sure. yeah, Paragon yeah. character. Yeah. Um, whereas we tend to expect, right, that as characters get grayer, on a moral on a moral level they get more complex in a certain sense i almost wonder if this comes from kind of like the 70s right like the godfather for instance is a is a story of very questionable morality because its protagonist is you know like michael corleone um who is you know like the climax of that movie is this guy pulling off a massacre spoilers i guess for the godfather i hope nobody i hope nobody got spoiled uh for a 50 year old movie um and and that, like, that part sort of, certainly sort of, like, interests me. It's like, where does this sort of uh, one side or the other kind of come from, in a way, right? Where where we see characters getting more or less complicated or complex. I also think that a piece of this, like, Thanos is probably another big example for me here. Where people talk about how Thanos was a very good villain because he had an ethos, right? Like, he had an ideology that he believed in. And that ideology was wrong, right? Like, this Malthusian whatever thing about us consuming too much stuff. And so he's just gonna uniquely and fairly call half of light like the life in the universe sort of thing i actually don't think that that's all that complex um and there is certain complexities to the character in the sense of like on an acting level and like the emotive stuff and him being kind of like quiet and thoughtful versus like domineering like someone who would more typically fill you know like general zod also had an ethos he wanted to bring krypton back but there's a big difference between the way people interface with general zod and the way people interface with thanos and i think that it is not the it is properly or it is improperly put to their ethos when it is when it should be their pathos right i have pathos for thanos because you see him in this fatherly role with gamora and he expresses regret and like you know a a relatable a relatable emotion for his actions even though he goes through the through with them whereas zod is just a straight fascist who believes unequivocally in fascism right and therefore i don't even though i understand him and his motivation, I do not connect with him on an emotional level, and I don't, like, relate to him or feel for him or have any empathy for him, um, which is part of, like, a piece of this in a way, right? Like, we we demand these villains are more relatable on an emotional level, 
and we kind of we sort of expect that that translates to a more complicated uh, to a more complicated character when it doesn't necessarily. Yeah, no, maybe, so like I, I think you could have maybe like the, the anti-hero trend may be kind of cresting in the 90s. You know, we can disagree. But like that, that's kind of like my, my understanding of the, of the zeitgeist. It's like maybe you can characterize that as like people really really uh, atta- got attached to like these earlier more complicated heroes and so um, authors misidentified uh, kind of like moral gray, you know, like edginess as as uh, as nuance, um, yeah, and maybe kind of like the similar thing that's happened in the aughts and the in the tens is like authors have have uh, uh, mistaken kind of like emotional resonance with nuance, right? Like in, in the same way that like you know maybe like in the same way that like you know the Punisher, you mistake the Punisher for being nuanced because he's gray. You mistake Thanos for being nuanced because he's kind of like a soft boy, if that makes sense, yeah. right? Like, no, yeah, that is, yeah, that's like exactly because, like, and and I think that it, that it's sort of interesting because, in a way, like, you know, I don't know how much I agree that the '90s were anti-hero, right? But they were definitely very irony poisoned, right? If you think yeah. of like quintessential '90s stories, they are very. I want to say insincere, but that's not quite true. I mean, ironic, I guess, like where nothing matters, everything's stupid. And if you ever like express, like everybody is Daria, right? If you express a genuine emotional kind of like connection or attachment to something, that is to be like mocked and ridiculed, right? This is the, this is sort of the backlash of Titanic sort of like writ large, right? Where the, the intense, sincere emotionality of this melodrama, right? Like of this historical melodrama is an object of ridicule because we're all smarter and cooler than that, right? Like we're not going to be kind of tricked. And I feel like the 2000s like deprogrammed that in us to a bit where people now do have very genuine emotional and, and sincere reactions, right? Like, in Avengers Endgame, when Iron Man says his, like, I love you 3000, or in Infinity War, when, you know, Spider-Man does that, I don't feel so good, Mr. Stark, right? Like, they become memes and everything like that, but, it, like, people connect to the sincere emotionality of it. So I feel like that almost might be kind of, like, the path that we're charting, in a way. Yeah, so I, I think I think you might be off by a decade. I think... I, I think, like, I think this is something that people fall prey to, is I think people's, like, sense of time is about a decade off. Like, I think the 90s, where we were kind of young and maybe weren't actually tracking onto it that hard, was kind of, like, anti-hero and edgy. I think the aughts are kind of, like, the rise of that um, irony poisoning. Because um, that's oh, really real, interesting. I, th- I think around, that's around the time that, like, Deadpool really... Like, Deadpool, for a little while, like, becomes, like, the number one kind of Marvel hero, right? Like, he has, like, something like sure. a, a half dozen different books, I think. Um, like, including, like, a weird run where, like, everybody's, like, a zombie or something. Um, yeah, no, I remember that run. Uh, it was Joe Kelly's run in the mid... in the mid- I was in high school at the time, and I was reading those... Right. I was reading those books. Um, and, and they were very good, right? Like, they were very good, and they were very funny. But I definitely get that. Uh, that is sort of, like, also a piece of the irony poisoning. And I think you see it in the movies also, to a certain extent. Um, like, people have talked about this a lot, where, like, the kind of travel that the superhero genre made from X-Men to Iron Man is an, an a, like an embrace in sincerity, right? Where people where like in in the X-Men movie from 1999 or 1997, whichever year it came out. Um that movie is kind of derisive towards the X-Men, like it shits on its own premise and like the and the you know like the people that would engage with it, right? Like, oh, what do you, you know, like what should I be wearing? Yellow spandex. Like that is a joke 
pointing towards the comic and saying like, oh, we're not, you know, we're not, we know, we're not actual, we're, we're cool, we're not lame, like those, like those nerdy comic books sort of thing. And you see that also reflected in a couple of other spots, right? Like, you know, Batman Begins um, certainly has that sort of like very serious flavor, right? Like we can't do Robin in, in the Christopher Nolan universe because Robin is too goofy. Um, it's not, it's not gritty enough, right? Whereas, the, the, and the only kind of like light in that tunnel are the Spider-Man movies. And this, by the way, is where I always talk about Spider-Man 2 because Spider-Man 2, I think it's just like, straight like ripped right out of the pages but now when you look at iron man when you look at captain america you know going forward into like dr strange like these are guys who are very reverent of their source material right and these are movies that are you know like that do not attack and make fun of right like the place that they kind of uh like the place that they came from which i think you know that's in a certain sense, and this is just for superhero movies, right? In a certain sense, that's kind of like where that went, and that did play play out across the two thousands. Huh. I wonder. I wonder how much of this kind of like mirrors kind of like nerd culture as a whole, because like over this time span, right? Like these early movies where they're like making fun of nerds essentially is also like you know it's like when nerds were still like you know. I didn't exactly get wedgied when I was in high school, but it wasn't exactly like, you know, you weren't cool to be a nerd, but, like, I think, like, nerds entered the mainstream as kind of, like, you know, at least, like, nerd chic. Um, and so, like, you can kind of, like, wholeheartedly embrace the comics and not be, like, too nerdy, if that makes sense, or, like, you know, Yeah, too, I mean, like, this might be comedy, one of those things where, like, you and I had different... Because, like, what were the most popular, like, movies and shows for, like, your... Like I, everybody in my high school was went went ape shit for you know like Spider Man two or like a you know not Attack the Clothes, Revenge of the Sith right like that stuff was very popular but that may have just been kind of like me I I feel like I was on the cusp of that I was not I wasn't the coolest kid in school right but I was fairly cool and also exceptionally nerdy um, and uh, and I feel like a lot it bore out in sort of like what the popular you know culture of the day was it was comic book movies it was lord of the rings it was you know star wars um versus was it was, was jersey like, shore not popular in your high school no not at all okay nobody, nobody cared about any of that stuff yeah, i think this might just be a fluke of my high school though because like my high school was very like artsy right like you know yeah and, um, and i definitely had a pot like there were pockets of, it's not like you know like i said it's not like i was like you know being like dogpiled by jocks or anything right like it, it was but it was just kind of like it, it was mostly just kind of like Separated out, but I wouldn't call any of the stuff that I was super into like super popular. You know, um, maybe it was sports. Like sports was very unpopular. Like nobody cared about the Giants. In, oh, in see, my high yeah, like like people cared about like people cared about sports, right? Like, uh, yeah, okay. Um, that, I think that's probably it then, because like nobody cared about the Giants. Nobody really cared about like the Yankees or the Mets or whatever. People, um, and I think that those are that's probably the best benchmark for like what is the yeah you know. Yeah, that's fair. Yeah, which yeah. is funny because I don't really think of I don't really think of sports as popular culture, but they absolutely are. Right? Oh yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. like um, in a way that like in a way that's like very like uh, you know the the old joke is like fantasy football is like Dungeons and Dragons for jocks or whatever, right? Yeah, like, yeah. Um, and like I like I play fantasy football, but I'm not nearly good. At, like I, I don't care enough about it, um, which is weird, right? Like I feel like. Like you could get you you could get obsessive about it the way that like you know sometimes we get obsessive about our D and D builds or like our our like you know our competitive League of Legend games but uh, uh huh interesting but uh, th- that but kind yeah but I you know I th- I think we've definitely proved that you know uh, I think I think I agree with you the irony poisoning probably started in the 
in the 90s and was there for it. Like, I think of that Daria sort of, like, Beavis and Butthead kind of, yeah. like, you know, like, well, everything's so, stupid, so, nothing matters kind of, like, so, so I frame. Think, I think part of this is that, like, there's, like, a, a portion where it's, like, like, Daria and Beavis and Butthead are remembered because it's kind of done well, right? Like, and then the poisoning comes a little bit later where, like, everything's doing because it's a thing to do. It's not done particularly well. Um, yeah. And so, like, there's probably a little bit of lead time there, right? Like, Beavis and Butthead and Daria are, like, like pre-poisoning irony. And then, like, you get, like, the kind of the height of that poisoning maybe somewhere in the aughts. And then it kind of yeah, just kind of yeah, comes yeah. down. Maybe? And then and then it comes down over time, over the late aughts. Yeah. Then you get to 2008, you get to Iron Man. Which, you know, I mean, it's funny. We, we, oh, boy, we need to do this. Um, we haven't done our, like, big, big MCU wrap-up. Yeah. We promised. We would do by the end of last year. That we would do by the end of the year. We should. <laughs> We'll, we'll pencil that in the schedule, right? But, like, it, it's funny even watching Iron Man 1 compared to, um, you know, Iron Man 3, right? Or, like, the, you know, uh, like, Civil War or something like that. Iron Man 1 came out in 2008. It came out the exact same year of The Dark Knight. And it ended up kind of, like, that represented a little bit of, like, a genre change. Um, where the Dark Knight was sort of the pinnacle of the grim and gritty archetype, and Iron Man created that sort of, like, you know, comedy archetype, where it was, like, sort of a, an action comedy, almost, in a sense, um, that would end up sort of dominating the tone of the Marvel Cinematic Universe into the early 2010s. Uh, and so, yeah, that is that is, I think that is correct, for sure. Yeah, I, I also wonder, like, Maybe this is part of like this kind of like this kind of like you know nuanced thing. Is like if you if you saw the X Men sneering at the camera, I feel like a lot of the Marvel Universe winks at the camera, right? Like I think most identified in you know I understood that reference um, from yeah. Captain America, um, and like so so I'm just trying to think about how this this pulls back into this kind of like black like you know more black and white moral tales in, in video games. Um, and I think video games follow a slightly different path, or just because of the, like you know the uh, the genre is a little bit newer, right? Like, sure. um, yeah. Um, uh, or like the kind of rather the medium is a little bit newer, and uh, I think that like you start to get into some really decent storytelling. I, you know, I, I will I will reiterate my my common refrain, which is that video game storytelling is worse than we all give it credit for because and like we because it's like not so great that we like video like stories in video games get a pass because. I think, on one hand, they're harder to tell, but also just because it's, like, a more nascent medium. Um, no, I, I do agree with that in the same way that... I mean, this follows into my my overall philosophy that, like, we get better at things over time, right? Like, humans are naturally kind of, like, progressive. Um, not in a political sense, but in a, yeah. in a like, we get smarter Standing and on the better at of the giants. things that we do. Right, yeah. We, the, the more technically proficient we get, we become more technically proficient. And it absolutely follows. Like, I think of... You know, some of the nascent... Like, I was just on a podcast with, like, the Akupara Games podcast where we were talking about, like, Wind Waker um, and that era and, like, Ratchet and Clank. And I love those games and I love those stories. But Ratchet and Clank as a story, which I thought at the time was really great and really well told, and I would still say that, like, that is true, right, was way worse than any of the comparable movies or television shows I was watching at the time. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, which, you know, we, and it's in the same way that, like, I talk about how the 1977 Star Wars, Star Wars Episode Four, is not that good, and that, you know, like, The Last Jedi is better, 
and we kind of give 1977 Star Wars a pass because it is like iconic. It's the same sort of functionality, right? Where I think we give the Ratchet and Clanks a pass because they are func- because of that iconic functionality. I, I mean, I'm going to have to register my disagreement with that particular statement, as I feel like I always have to. But you know, I, I do take your no, point. No, yeah, I know. I, I'm just trying to yeah, illustrate yeah. the principle. Obviously, yeah, yeah. Um, is there a better? What What is another example of that? See, it's it's easy with Star Wars because Star Wars yeah. is so long running. There aren't a lot of like super long running. Like Casino Royale is better than I don't know. It's a good '60s James Bond film. Yeah. So so I, I so I I, okay. I I feel like you put maybe a little bit too much into this. Like I think it's also hard to do this like in series, right? Like like in, or in intra series because I think it's easier to kind of like like I think part of like what maybe makes some of these like so I actually I want to do a, an episode at some point on on on, on uh on you know on on Campbell. Um yeah. but like part of what makes a new hope so good is that it's like it is a a a very good telling of the hero's journey, right? And like so everything past that isn't that and like can't be that. And so um it's just kind of hard to uh it, it's kind of hard to like like compare like in the same way that like you know we're talking about basic good versus evil, st- evil stories a new hope is a very kind of simple story a very kind of good versus evil story and it only gets like it only yeah. gets the nuance later in the series and that that's like oh kind of, yeah this is part of my kung fu panda is better than star wars episode four yeah so i think I, like i think that that's know, probably a more valid comparison right as much as like yeah, i'll yeah, probably yeah. disagree with you on that again in a specific example like it's easier to do it with like the same story told in a different way later than is to kind of mm-hmm. compare it inside of series because the okay like, yeah I, I okay yeah I, i'm on board with you i agree yeah so that is that is the better comparison then kung fu panda tells because it functionally is telling the same you know like that same story but it's like it's tighter and it has a certain structure where like the, the emotional moments hit better right like i mean i talk about kung fu panda all the time obviously well maybe i haven't talked about it in a while but like the fight between tai lung and shifu is full of all of this narrative momentum because it is just and it's little tiny things but like there are these little optimizations that kind of brought that like you know we might say 90 percent to 100 percent, right where star wars had it there but it just got better and more refined over the intervening four decades um and if i were to say like yes kung fu panda is like better people would be like no that's that's insane and it's because we kind of like give star wars sort of like a handicap is that like iconic handicap because it started it it did it it did it before anybody else did it you know it was it gets like more it gets like more credit i i think that's definitely true i I think it's also like kung fu panda might be an easy like because that's like not an example that jumps to people's mind it's probably Mm -hmm. a pretty good one whereas like i feel like in a more direct comparison you're going to like see see ways that it tries to distinguish itself from the kind of obvious inspiration material, right? Like I'm I'm thinking here, like is there a better Seven Samurai than Seven Samurai? I don't think anything any of the like you know the handful of adaptations. I, have, I've I seen. mean, I would have some hot takes, but sure, yeah, yeah, oh, I definitely. Oh, see you. I, I I actually want to hear this. What, what's what's your what's your hot take? What's what's the better? I would say uh uh I would say that there are a lot of movies that do the seven samurai better than seven samurai like fellowship of the ring uh the lord of the rings movies i don't stuff know if, better. if i don't know i mean like the... i guess i don't know how much that counts yeah. it is i think of those as being fundamentally the same story um 
But like, I wouldn't say that the Magnificent Seven was that what it was? Magnificent yeah, Magnificent Seven? Seven. Neither of yeah, yeah. That's when we. Yeah, I don't think either podcast. of those are really better. I you could maybe make a case for the anime. We should do an episode on the anime sometimes. The, okay. the anime is fucking nuts. But because obviously it's an anime and gets all this extra time, like I love the dynamic between Kambe and. Uh, Kuzo in the anime probably better than I do in the movie. Like in the movie, Kuzo is a badass and like Kanbei is really like awesome. But the thing about them in the anime, and this is the most anime thing ever, by the way, um, Kuzo is working for the bad guy at the start of the series, and then he fights Kanbei, and they have such a good fight that Kuzo is like, "All right, I'm gonna be on the team now." But like, he's also sort of like a bad guy in a like. Like a, like in a Vegeta kind of sense on the team, and I think that that dynamic is cooler than the dynamic that they have in the movie, which is maybe a spicy take. I don't know, but yeah, no, yeah, I, I I see what you mean. Is there a better Seven Samurai than Seven Samurai? There probably is. I can't think of it off the top of my head. Though. I, but part of it too is also like like this is also true with games because so I think we can roll this back. Is like part of what makes I think Seven Samurai so good is the cinematography, and that's mm. a rarer thing, right? Like in the same way that yeah, like the yeah. gameplay aspects of a game will will elevate it. Um, and I think maybe, like, if, if I want to, like, kind of roll back to how valid I think the take of, uh, you know, we need we need more black and white stories, is um, I think kind of like that player, uh, that, that player involvement aspect makes nuanced stories harder to tell in a way that's convincing, if that makes sense. Like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah, because you get player revolt in a way. Which is like when the when the game. I mean, this is sort of the ludo narrative distance yeah. people, that people talk about. But it's like when the game forces you to do something you do not want to do, right? Um, that is that's something that you can pull off in a movie because the person is not the character, and so I can watch a character make a tragically poor decision, right? Like I watch in Aquaman. I watch Aquaman make the mistake of underestimating Orm, which leads to him losing the trial of kings and having to be, like, saved by Mira. And I know, you know, like, I wouldn't do that. I wouldn't make that mistake, right? But, like, I'm not Aquaman. I'm not Arthur Curry. And Arthur Curry is arrogant in that moment, and he does make that mistake because he doesn't care. He's not taking his responsibility seriously, right? So, like, it kind of, like, works there. But in a game version of that... Because I am literally playing Arthur Curry, it is much harder for me to to force me to make that mistake kind of against my will, if that makes sense. Yeah. Which I think leads to designers avoiding that sort of situation, and they place their characters in more kind of like unequivocally good spots. Yeah, I mean, I, I also, I, actually, I think maybe maybe that's what this reaction is to, is they kind of maybe don't, right? Like, um, you know, one of the big famous examples is Spec Ops The Line, right? Um, and Spec Off the Limes gets lauded, and I think it's because, you know, it's, it's one of the first ones that does it, but, like, um, there are a lot of games where, like, you basically have, you have to do the thing to advance the plot, and that's, like, not the right thing to do, if that makes sense. Yeah. Um, I think no, in Spec Off, yeah, I, well, I think Spec Off the Line works in the same way Watchmen does, because it comes out in the context of so many games that aren't. In, I, I don't think Spec Ops The Line works in a vacuum, really. You have to, it, it, it worked so well at its time because it was surrounded by Call of Duty and Call of Duty clones that were refusing to take themselves like to this sort of like level of like what the horrors of war actually are like. And when you view it through that context, I think it works amazingly, right? Where it is examining you are consci- you are constantly making these kinds of decisions all the time. But now that I think that we're more trained and we're also a little bit out of that space where people nobody plays Call of Duty for the campaigns anymore, you know what I mean? Um that it it works less well. 
uh, now. Yeah, I, I I also wonder about that too because like there, there's definitely a level of cynicism involved with this, right? Because like yeah, Call of Duty tried and tried, and I don't know how much of this is a direct res- uh, result of Spec Ops, but like the one that sticks out to me is No Russian. Um, yeah, No Russian is the big example. For and sure. and then the other one is pay, press F to pay respects, um, which is like. <laughs> I mean, it was an attempt to be like a serious moment, right? Like you know, sure. we are really yep. we are really going to like attach the player to his actions in this game by messing it, making him press a button to like place your hand on the casket of your fallen comrade, right? And like obviously that missed wildly. So like, and you know, part of me is just kind of like you know, like watch, watch, watching this like you know roll downhill is in Warzone or Modern Warfare. Um, there is a a a calling card, like a, you know, like your, your title you can get that is press F to pay respects. Um, <laughs> um, and, you know, and, you know, it's turned into, it's, it has turned into like a, a, you know, a kind of like, you know, I, I like ironically sincere kind of piece of gamer phrase, right? Like, you know, you know, it's like, that's like a whole, that's a whole thing on its own, right? Like, you know, like, um, press F to pay respects is a thing that you say kind of sincerely when someone loses, but also in recognition of the fact that it's like, not a serious enough thing to actually be upset about, you know. Like you would, you would say you would press F for like your losing LCS team, right? Um, yeah. I don't know. Yeah, but, and 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 the thing about like and the thing about all that stuff that I think is like interesting as it reflects kind of back into games as a whole and as a culture. And, you know, honestly, part, part of the part of it is that like there's this divide between who the character is when you control them and who the character is in a cutscene. Like so for instance, people talk about I mean, the whole genesis of this article was The Last of Us 2, which is very, you know, like gray morality kind of stuff, right? Um and in Last of Us 1, there's all this there's also this stuff where people will be playing, you know, like you are playing Joel or whatever as you are moving through the world and the, and and the scenes in the story. But then the story will kind of remove that control from you and you will watch a cutscene where Joel does something that you do, like do not approve of in a way, which I think is kind of harder to like, kind of harder to pull off. Although I do think it's easier to do when it's Joel as opposed to you know like the the Dragonborn, right? Like or the sh- like even, even sh- like Shepard like straddles this line um, in, in an interesting way because like he is kind of like your avatar, but he also has his own personality. Yeah, I mean this is the, this is sort of where I like want to almost like unpin that in a way. Like I think. Shepard is there is a greater evil that Shepard is always working against right and you are fighting but like you kind of have to decide what the best way to approach that battle is right it is unequivocal that the reapers are evil that they are very bad and that you have to stop them right but there are a lot of minute questions that you get to make along the way where it's like okay well should we allow the Krogan like we're going to un fuck the Krogan genome thing and save this, like, genome data, and even though that might have poor consequences, we have the Rachni Queen, the Rachni almost destroyed everyone in the universe, right, but, like, now you have an option to free that queen and send and send her out and stop the extinction of, like, the Rachni existence or whatever and it's like those questions are way more kind of like nuanced and gray but it is actually in a in an overall framework that is quite good versus evil binary right um and i think that that's kind of the secret for games like this is sort of my overall like thing with this with this article is that i want to see almost more of a a fusion of the two kind of forms or styles where you have a greater 
binary morality, but you play with the gray stuff in 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 those details. I think that that works very very well. Yeah, I, I also think that it that it, that it varies game to game, right? Like. Like, uh, I think you can be as gray as you want in something like uh, a sandbox of any sort, right? Like, uh, in, in Skyrim. Um, uh, yeah, I'm, I mean, I almost sort of would argue that in Skyrim, a lot of the time people aren't really even playing. I, the, the, you know, sometimes those games, like, like work on that level, and they, and they get you kind of, like, into the headspace where you are kind of, quote-unquote, creating your character. Um, but I think a lot of people's Dragonborn are is almost like not a character or a protagonist in a, in a real story at all, and that like it, it is kind of a whole other kind of like separate category. Well, I don't I, know. I have I have very murky thoughts about this, but I, I feel like like it, those characters are like basically don't exist on that high level, even though there's like ostensibly an overarching story, right? Like they only exist kind of in their moment to moments, um, in like these kind of side stories without kind of the overarching bit um and you, i mean i think the characters tend towards a certain type like you know, like you play your character in a certain way um what a, i don't know i, I think stealth, maybe you mean stealth archer everyone plays the stealth archer right but right? like the stealth archer can be a bastard or or a, or a paragon right yeah um i think maybe this is a little bit stronger for say like civilization or say crusader kings where you can like get into your character in a way that you can just kind of play it and it I guess maybe the fact that you're kind of divorced from a lot of individual actions in a way kind of helps that, if that makes sense, right? Like, yeah. And is... also there are game mechanics that are incentivizing your play. This is part of the Skyrim thing. I think a lot of the times people make decisions in Skyrim based on, like, purely mechanical level. Right. Uh, where it's like, I am going to say the thing to complete the quest. I, you know what I mean? I am going to take the quest because I take all the quests. I am going to do, you know... You want to you become the speaker or whatever it is, the listener, I can't remember, for the Dark Brotherhood and you want to become the guild master of the Thieves Guild and you want to become, like, the the headmaster of the Mages Guild, right? Like, you kind of want to do everything. And so, like, in a certain sense, you don't really have a real character who is going down a certain path. You're just kind of, like, seeing what the game has to to show you in, in something like Skyrim, which I do think is great. And I, I continually hold... I think Skyrim is is one of like the great games of all time, and it deserves that like that title in a very like real sense. But it deserves it for that kind of like that immersive world building sense, not right. for any kind of real narrative gusto sense. In the same way that I would say like you know there is a there is a core narrative to Mass Effect Two that makes it a great game. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Um, yeah, I, I get that. Huh. But yeah, and and this is something that I've been thinking about because like I've been playing a lot of StarCraft Two recently, and I will forever fawn over that story, which is super great and amazing. Um, even though you maintain that nobody cares about it, <laughs> I care, Mango. <laughs> I care <laughs> because it has that same sort of framework, right? Like Arcturus Mengsk is fundamentally and definitionally, without question, an evil bad guy, right? But there is a lot of gray in that story, and it comes in the smaller, like, character-driven moments that make it more, like, kind of, like, interesting. And and this is part of, like, the Raynor subplot. Like, this is, like, Raynor and Artanis a little bit more than Kerrigan, because Kerrigan obviously kind of has, like, baggage or whatever. But, like, the, the implications, like, the moral implications of your Commander Raynor, you are leading a resistance, right? Um, against against 
Arcturus Mengsk, this functional, this authoritarian like piece of garbage, right? Um, you are collecting these artifacts, and Sarah Kerrigan, who you used to fuck, is now the biggest, most genocidal person in the entire universe. And you eventually learn that, one, there is a prophecy that foretells if Kerrigan dies, the whole universe gets destroyed. And two, you can use that artifact to de-infest her from, like, her Zerg conditioning. There's a lot of gray in there, where it's like, oh boy, you know, do you let this genocidal maniac off the hook for her genocide, right? Do you offer her that chance at redemption? Does that even, like, work or make sense? How much do you respect the prophecy that Zeratul is like, yo, bro, listen, this prophecy is some, like, serious shit, right? I think all of those questions work, and they work in the context of Raynor is a, you know, like, a human character who has to grapple with these questions, and he has to confront people on his ship, like Tychus or, like, Matt Horner, who are gonna be like, bro, we are not de-infesting Kerrigan. She needs to die. That is what matters. Like, get off your shit kind of thing. And in the context of those small moments, the gray morality and the nuance works. In the context of the big story, you need a straightforward, definitionally, defini definitional evil like Arcturus Mengsk or like Amon, the Dark God, um, that, like, eventually gets, like, woken up and all this other sort of stuff. Um... And so, yeah, that's that's kind of my thing, I guess, when it comes to this stuff, is I really feel like you can do the nuance, but if you have to do it, do it in the details. Don't do it on the on that, like, top level, because trying to do it at that top level in the way that some of the, you know, like, Last of Us kind of stuff do, you do, you, like, really can run into those sorts of problems where the player gets to, like, I don't know. Yeah, straight, straight, straight dissonance. Um, I think the other way you can do it is just like kind of remove the player from the from the equation entirely. Um, to 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 call back to another favorite Blizzard game, like World of Warcraft solves this problem by basically having your character be important but like not plot essential. Oh yeah, yeah. yeah. The, the the plot happens between characters you do not control, right? The plot yeah. is driven by characters like Sourfang and Sylvanas, and you're around for their things, and you can watch them and and kind of like participate alongside them. Right, but there is never a point where your character, whatever the champion, the the, the commander, whatever your title is, and in any given expansion, is the like is the person who is making a linchpin decision um, about how the plot moves forward. Yeah, I, I wonder how much of that like like just works because we we expected of MMORPGs. Um, uh, maybe <laughs> this this might be a, a really hot take, but like maybe MMORPGs have the the capacity for the best writing because despite the fact they're MMOs, um, you actually have literally no input on the plot. <laughs> um, uh, like, because you, you can tell a really excellent story and not have to worry about pes pesky player agency, right? You like, know, I mean, to be honest, that is, like, kind of true. Um, like, at any individual point in time in an MMO, you your, your character's sort of, like, fate is, like, predestined in a way. Like, you will go... you In Final Fantasy fourteen. you will go through that entire storyline from A Realm Reborn through to Stormblood, or whatever the most, Shadowbringers. Um, and you will run through the same step-by-step -step process as any other player, like, running through that, like, running through that story. Um, which, you know... I don't know. I, I guess because they give you so much agency over the gameplay elements, you can kind of get away with it in the narrative stuff. Yeah. Also, like, that, like, the narrative stuff is, like, it's, 
it's fun, but like you're there to experience it. Almost, it's almost like an adventure game, right? Like when yeah. you when you're doing the uh, what, what's what's the uh, what's the term you used for um, uh, like action in between uh, content munchers, right? Like oh yeah, content munchers. Yeah, like yeah, yeah, yeah. the MMOs are like definitional content munchers, right? Like. Mm-hmm. Um, no, that's very true, right? Like, the, when the new, you know, story bit comes out, I am effectively content munching. I mean, the content muncher is a derisive term because it refers to a place where the gameplay is uninteresting, but the story is interesting. Therefore, you are just kind of grinding through the content that you don't care about in order to get the, to the content you do care about. And by the way, I do think that you could have an opposite version of this, though people tend to not, like, that tends to not happen. You can just skip cutscenes and stuff in most stories or whatever. Um... But uh, but that is true, right? Like, you know, I sit and I'm going to do my quest and I'm going to get my 20 bear butts and it's going to unlock the next little cutscene that's like, ah, you're doing this thing or whatever. You know, and like in, in, in a good situation, those two things are symbiotic, right? Um, like I talked about this when it came to WoW, when it came to the 8.3 mechanic on the visions where you earn the currency in order to... Um, get runs at the visions and the visions are very fun and engaging right but you can only run a certain number of them in the week and you have to collect the currency in order to buy the keys in order to access those visions and for someone like me that reward made the gameplay of collecting the currency fun right so me flying around the zone and completing these like world quests over and over again which is like a kind of a grind right had this sort of symbiotic relationship because it was giving me a currency that i really really valued i really like doing visions and i want to do them as much as possible therefore that currency has a lot of value therefore all the stuff i do to get that currency feels good that's a sort of symbiotic relationship whereas there are folks who find that grating they want to do the they want to do the visions why are you forcing me to do content i don't want to do in order to do the visions right in a certain sense it is a content muncher of two gameplay systems where I am munching through the content of earning the currency so that I can get to the good content, which are the visions. Yeah. And like, it's kind of, uh, there's like a whole thing there, right? Which is not very, very related to the narrative, but like, you know, if you could just do the visions, they probably also wouldn't be as fun because you could just kind of like, uh, there's, there's a whole, there's a whole thing. There's also, no, I, think- I, I think that, I think that's very real. Like at this point in time, right. I mean, I do my vision every week, but most people have fallen off it. And for a while it was really engaging. Like we were getting together, shout out to my friends, right? Like Sarian and Raylana and Lou and, and Rahe, Rachel. We were every week we were grouping up and we were doing and we were pressing and we were getting, you know, further in the visions we were getting to, cause it was gated at, at, at the start, right? where you were just able to get, like, as far as you could. And so we were running these as a team, and we were getting better as a team, and we were getting our roots down, and we were, like, learning all the new fights together and stuff. And that was really great and engaging, but we don't do that stuff anymore, right? Like, I just run my vision solo, and I'm probably the only person that still does, because, you know, like, once we got to the point where we had maxed it out, essentially, like, once we kind of had finished through the content, we we kind of, like, put it aside. And if they had... If I could... If we could have ground them out immediately, right... We probably would have ground that shit out in, like, a weekend. Whereas, what actually ended up happening is we did the visions over the course of, you know what I mean, like, three or four months where we were, like, progressing through a bit at a time. Yeah. No, that's... There's, like, I, there, there's, a, like, you know, there's there's that. There's, like, you know, having to have your, your, your sour so your sweet is sweeter. I think there's also a level of, like, 
part of there's like this idea of like sublation gameplay where like the grind is kind of satisfying its own right. I think you get like like a lot of these clicker hero games or like you know Universal Paperclip, um, you know feed on that in the same way. But you know it's obviously inter- interspersed with these with these systems. Um, uh, I also think that there's just kind of like a there's 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 uh how do I want to put this? Um, I wonder how much of this is that like the content like can't stand on its own but like because it's part of this giant ecosystem it's fine um like like would you go and do visions if they were the only thing that that world of warcraft was and i think the answer for any of this is kind of like no um that's because like you know that's kind of the appeals that you you build up to like you build your character up and like that your your time put in is, is its own badge of honor uh yeah um, yeah, no, I, 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 I certainly get that. And I think that, like, you know, to wrap this back kind of, in a certain sense, to story stuff, there are definitely people for whom the story stuff doesn't matter at all, right? Like, these are the folks who are complaining right now about covenants um, because they prioritize gameplay so much that they are effectively just going to take whatever the stats tell them to, right? They are going to water finds a crack, do the optimal build for their... Um, for their covenants, and they're not really going to engage with sort of like the lore implication. Like, the, the, well, those people argument... probably aren't complaining, right? Because they don't care about the story at all, right? The people who do care enough about their own story that, that there's a clash there is where the problem is, right? So, uh, so these folks are complaining um, because everyone in the WoW community is complaining because it's just like terrible and toxic. Um, but uh, they're, they're kind of complaining from another level, which is sort of like a you are advertising choice but not giving me a choice, right? If you were giving me a choice, all of these things would be perfectly balanced and I could choose whichever one I wanted, but you, the things are not perfectly balanced. These folks tend to overstate, like, you know, the real difference between two covenants is probably going to be in, you know, pers- like, like sub one percent. Yeah. Like 2.24% optimization. But for those folks, anything that is not optimal is suboptimal and therefore they cannot do it. So my argument for those folks is they are opting into a mindset in which there can never be a choice, right? That all of World of Warcraft will always boil down to a, uh, to a calculation and that they have no business getting mad at the devs for that. It is their own mindset that puts them there, right? Um, but then they're also kind of like on a tier below those folks. There are people who, you know, um, care a little bit on that story level who are like, I would love to do Necro Lords, but... I don't like the Necrolord's ability, and I think the Necrolord's ability isn't going to be competitive, and all of these tryhards that are pugging Mythic Plus groups aren't going to accept me because they know that Necrolord's rogue is garbage or, you know, whatever else kind of thing. Where, which, like, you know, they're, they're, these are folks who do have a real connection to some aspect of the story um, and, and kind of, like, the gameplay synthesis. My argument would be that, like, you need the gameplay. These things are... You need them to weave together and to be you know, uh, the same thing and that they, and that like, it matters. I think people overstate the amount to which story and RP stuff does not matter. I don't think people would play an MMORPG that was wow, but de-skinned from flavor in all, in all its respects. If you were just hitting ability one, ability two, ability three, and they put out, you know, certain amounts of damage and you still had talents that reset ability one when you fulfill this condition or whatever, you're like, nobody would play that in the same way that nobody would play a card game that was the exact same as Magic the Gathering or Hearthstone 
with just all of the all of the flavor shaved off. Yeah, no, this is also a thing in like in like fighting games, right? Like uh, there was this, there was a big kind of dust around Marvel vs. Capcom Infinite because um, I I haven't followed the game, so I don't know if they are. But at launch, the X Men weren't in um, because the X Men were controlled by Sony, and this was like a like you know like Marvel had like a big time, this, you know, height of the MCU type stuff. And someone said that, like, so Wolverine's a very iconic character from that series, and he wasn't going to be in the game, and, like, the community guy who, you know, he's basically, like, you, but for, like, an even more faceless corporation, right, um, than, like, when you, like, uh, I guess you're, you're not very faceless Yeah, right I, I at least get to be, like, what, like, you know, 15% of my, co- well, uh, it's bigger now, but, you know, yeah, like. Yeah, but, like, you know, like, this guy's, like, you know. The, the talking representative for a for a it's it, like imagine like your anonymousness at Square, but like you have to be public yeah. facing. You have you have the job for that sure. you have. <laughs> <laughs> um, and he's like, yeah, well, you know that like I think he called it like that that frame is in the game, and it's like you know like maybe on a different character. And he's like, that's not how it works. You play the characters because they're fun and because you like Wolverine, right? Like you know. No, yeah, like I think that this is a chronically under discussed and under understood thing in the in the games kind of like community. I think people, like I think gamers underestimate the amount to which this stuff matters. I think less people would play Yasuo if he didn't have the samurai iconography and symbolism and stuff like that. And I think his gameplay loop is great, but like his gameplay loop in the same way that good editing informs a story uh, like a, like a movie or like good cinematography like in, informs a story or in like, you know, in a if if you are like I talk about how the camera work in the Zack Snyder DC films is something I resonate with because it shows the, the impact of the characters in their fights, and that matters to me. It's the same sort of thing, right? Like, the gameplay of Yasuo reflects back into, in the same way that his lore does, in the same way that his voice lines do, in the same way that all of his, you know, like, like the, the look of his skins does. It reflects back and it creates this holistic picture that is iconic and that attracts, like, you as a player. And that is true for playing, choosing to play a warrior over playing a mage, choosing to play a hunter over playing, you know, uh, you know, like, a samurai in Final Fantasy XIV, right? Like, that stuff all matters. And I feel like people don't pretend... Or people don't think it does um, in, like, some of these hardcore gamer spaces. Yeah, and, and I, think, I think, like... I think there is space for it, like, to not matter, right? Like, th- this comes out, I think, more clearly in board games, right? Like, there are some games where the theme is very important. I remember, especially, like, you know, tabletop RPGs, it's, like, all of it. Um, but, like, um, there are games, like, um, I forget the name of it, but there's, like, some, like, gem trading games or, like, you know, like, little things where it's, like, just, like, kind of about the puzzle of figuring out how to win, and you, you can, like, kind of clean the flavor off of that, and it's not the end of the world. You see this in a lot of ways because, like, you can kind of, like, switch themes out. Right, like, uh, and in, in certain games, like there, there are like, um, like maybe this isn't like the best example, but uh, there's like a, like a like a courtship game where you're basically like trying to win the favor of like the princess, and you have a couple cards. It's all very mechanically based, and it's like skinned a thousand times over. There's like a Batman version. There's a, uh, uh, there's like a the standard version. There's like a bunch of different um, universe versions, and like you can clean the the, the story out at some level. Um, but those are that's like a very specific kind of place for it to work, um, but yeah, that's that's kind of neither here nor there. Um, we're running up on our hour. Did you have any other anything else you wanted to talk about with this topic in particular? 
you know, I, that, I, I, we, we covered my big hot takes, and I feel like I have made my my big real points. But just to like TLDL, too too long, didn't listen. Uh, for anyone who is skipping to the middle of this podcast for absolutely no reason, I think my big thing is that you can have binary moral characters with very simple like moral frameworks that are also incredibly nuanced and have a lot going on, um, kind of in their in their inner character construction. And you could also have anti-hero characters with very gray morality, um, sort of like Thanos, that are actually pretty simple um, and not all that complicated, but like that we we assume that there's a certain kind of correlation between those two complications. Um, and that the best way for games to go about having gray morality versus, you know, a more binary morality is to set a superstructure where you have a true, you know, like, ultimate evil that is unequivocally evil, like the Reapers in Mass Effect, like Amon or Arcturus in StarCraft 2. Oh, excuse me. Uh, like Amon or Arcturus in StarCraft 2. Um, and that you play with the you play with the nuance in the nuance of the story, right? You dig into the details. Are you going to help Dr. Ariel Hansen you know, evacuate a colony that could be infested with the Zerg, with, with like, Zerg infestation or whatever? Or are you going to assist your very good friends, the Protoss, who insist that these villagers, uh, that these colonists are infested and slaughter them to a T because they're eventually going to spread that infestation uh, elsewhere? You know, like, that's a real moral choice that happens in StarCraft 2. And it's one that, like, you know, I, I think that there's a lot of nuance to that decision. Um, and that there's a lot kind of going on underneath the subtext. And I wouldn't really call either of those decisions the better or worse decision. Because in one, you are slaughtering good, you know, noble Protoss who you have fought alongside and they are good guys. And in the other, you are fighting defenseless colonists essentially um who are suffering from a disease that is you know kind of outside of like their control um so that's my thing that's my that's my big takeaway that's why i wanted to talk about this topic uh yeah, yeah. do you, what what did you have any concluding thoughts yeah um you know i think i think you're mostly i, I don't think you need that overarching kind of bit um i mean, this is kind of might be like a, a little bit of a french goodbye but like i think also part of this is like level of like you know practical practical decisions when when uh when ma when like developing a game right like you like making a game where like you can actually like explore all these nuances leads to a lot of content that you know like that any one player doesn't see all of it type of deal um i think that's like a big limiting factor i think like in an i like assume an ideal world where like you can put an infinite amount of time into a game and have it not cost you anything i think you could make better, more nuanced games because you could branch those paths out indefinitely and you don't have this kind of, like, ludonarrative dissonance problem. Um, but I think that, like, it's just, like, not practical for the sake of how things work. Although, you know, again, this might be a little bit French goodbye, but, like, the fact that, like, like I think the genre most position to, like, solve this problem is MMOs and they have gone the complete opposite direction of it, right? Like... <laughs> think that MMOs, I, I made this point the other day um, that got me a lot of hate because BFA is bad and everyone needs to hate BFA all the time. I think BFA has the most complex story of anything we have seen in World of Warcraft thus far. Um, which isn't to say that it is the best story, um, 
you know, uh, I do think that the, like, the story is good and better than people give it credit for and everything like that, but that's not really, like, the point I'm making here. The point I'm making is that, like, the, the actual mechanics and the narrative that is going on is just, like, way, there's just so much more happening now than there was, you know, ten years ago when we were doing this in Wrath of the Lich King. Or, like, maybe a better comparison would be Mists of Pandaria, which had a, a functionally similar storyline with Garrosh instead of Sylvanas. Like, you know, and I love Garrosh, and I think Garrosh is a really well-written character, and I, and I think he's compelling, um, and I think that the story of Mists was really good and everything like that. Um, but Garrosh was a more simple character than Sylvanas, and the storyline of Mists of Pandaria was a more simple storyline than, than Battle for Azeroth. So I do think, and I also think this is true for Final Fantasy XIV, right? Like, Final Fantasy XIV is very... Um, interested in its narrative and it is very dedicated to that narrative such that people are really connected to those characters, right? Um, and in, in, a, in a way that's very, like, different than, than WoW's narrative, it has also become a more complex, complicated narrative story um, compared to MMOs of yesteryear, right? Even versions of, you know, Final Fantasy XI and, you know, like, WoW Classic, right? Like, the Final Fantasy fourteen of now, the BFA of now, are much more uh, like narratively complex than those than those games were. So I don't know. Maybe MMOs are doing a better job than, than you might think. So, so I, the, 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 what I want to point out here is that, like, you know, kind of to our conversation, right? They can do that because the players aren't really factors in the way the story plays out. Um, my only point was that. An MMO, especially like a popular one, is situated enough that they have the financial resources that you could do a bunch of branching paths and have it not be so wasteful. Um, uh, and like that's like a thing that it could do, but they don't because you know that's like the it's it's, it's, it's it, there's a, probably a whole set of, set of financial incentives there that that make it not make sense. But my my, my point was that like there is a, there are enough players, especially outside, there are enough players of WoW that you could justify making a thousand branching paths for it to work. Because you have 15 million people playing it. Oh, right. I see. I'm sorry. I kind of yeah. misunderstood. Yeah. I, I get where you're coming from. For sure. For sure. Yeah. For sure. Um, but yeah, that, that was that was my only my only thought there. But that's that topic. Uh, how was your week? Uh, that is a good question. I mean, uh, so last week we talked all about Hearthstone, which was great. Um, and I invited, basically on the podcast, uh, uh Aaron to the Hearthstone tournament that I was going to be running that weekend. Um, you know, me and all my WoW friends get together on Friday nights. We do this thing called Dudes Night. Sometimes we'll, you know, fuck around in other games uh, like HOTS, which I've also been playing a lot of, but or, or like Overwatch or whatever. But this one we did a Hearthstone tournament where the reward was actually serious. Like, um, I have always maintained two things about, about Hearthstone with, these, with, like, this group. Because I have a full collection... Um, and I'm very, like, up on the game. I, I have a rule where if somebody beats me, I will gift them a pack. Um, it's kind of like when we used to make bets. Uh, do you remember this? When we would make bets for mystery skins in League? Yeah. Because, like, a mystery skin is, like, three bucks or whatever. Um, and a pack, a Hearthstone pack is, like, a dollar. Uh, I do not mind giving out packs to folks when I, when I lose. Especially because, you know, I obviously tend to win because I have a better collection than people. And I have a better understanding of, like, the metagame and what's good and what's bad. Um, and, and, and Hearthstone. And the other rule um, that, that a lot of the times is I'll have, like, a bigger prize, right? So the first time we did this tournament, it was just, listen, it was a free-for-all. Everybody show up. Everybody have decks play each other a lot, we'll record who wins, who loses, the person with the best record at the end of the night will win the packs. Myself disincluded, obviously, because I'm the one who's funding it, essentially. 
Um, this time we did the uh, we did the pre-purchase bundle, right? So if you pre-purchase Skullman's Academy, you'd get. 50 packs or whatever, which is like $50. And I was like, okay, well, this is like a serious business thing. And, and two of our friends work at a card shop. Um, and so they were like, listen, we'll do like a real, like a real tournament where, you know, you play three rounds, rounds, the best people play the best people sort of thing. And the person, you know, at the end of those three rounds who wins will kind of uh, win. Though we had, ended up having to go four rounds because obviously I was playing and not to brag, uh, but I was undefeated. So... I couldn't gift myself the packs, and we had to play a fourth round to determine essentially second place. Um, that second place ended up being Aaron, who sort of like unsurprisingly, because Aaron also has a very like a very good command of the meta game, um, even though he is a free to play player. So he's kind of playing at the same level on a deck level with these folks um, because they're also sort of like free to play players. Uh, but you know, he watches Hearthstone esports like I do or whatever, and like YouTube videos. And he keeps up on all like the content and the podcasts and stuff like that. Um, which I, I kind of appreciate on one level because, um, it sort of, it disproves in a way the principle that in Hearthstone, like skill doesn't matter. Right. That like actually, if you have an under a good understanding of the meta game, if you're if you're, you know, uh, if you're like knowledgeable in the in the sport of it all, it is very competitive, and like the better player wins in a way. This is actually really interesting, and I'm gonna subtweet a friend of mine a little bit. Um, I like one one of the players uh, was running a deck that I would classify as a, a pretty expensive deck. Um, and uh, and she did not do you know she did she did pretty well but she did not do like insanely well or whatever so in a certain sense you kind of have like Aaron who is playing this free to play deck better than someone who has kind of like bought a better deck in a way um, which I don't know I just thought that that I just thought that that was interesting uh, though I do feel a little bit bad for all my WoW friends who's like oh hey by the way here's my friend who's really good at Hearthstone and I'm inviting him to the tournament and then he fucking you know like and then he takes <laughs> I brought him the ringer. Like, <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Like, I brought it, you know, like, I brought it a rigor kind of thing. Yeah, I mean, the other interesting, like, friend of the podcast, uh, Phelanor, who we play uh, Star Wars with, was also in it. Um, and Phel is also, a, like, Phel plays a lot of card games. He doesn't play a ton of Hearthstone, but he plays a lot of, like, you know, Dragon. You know, he's the guy that works at the card shop, right? So he is just naturally a very good card player, and he understands concepts like tempo and value and all this other sort of stuff. Um, and... I was really interested. It's like, he does really well with these, even though his deck is not, like, super high quality. And I feel like it's just because of that, like, latent kind of... Uh, it's just kind of, like, like latent skill. Um, I did really well with my Ripper deck. I actually only lost one game to Sarian. Shout out to my boy Sarian, uh, who took a game off me with just really good, you know, real tempo on his Pure Paladin deck. Um, even though I, f I was playing a kind of not great deck, I was playing Ripper Warrior, which is all about... Um, like something that is weirdly in the warrior identity right now is if you have like you have big minions in your deck and you will summon copies of those minions from your deck so the card is like dimensional ripper it's a 10 mana spell you cast it you summon two copies of a minion in your deck if your deck is only full of very very high cost high value minions like you know seven sevens with taunt or whatever that's insane summoning two seven sevens with taunt is, is huge summoning two death wings like 12 12s is huge um but like you know, like the deck can kind of kind of get a little bit wrecked. But I had some really sweet plays. Like I was playing against Aaron, and I wasn't sure whether or not he had a Maligos combo in hand. 
um, which is pretty big in Warlock right now. Like, you know, Mal the, the, the way Warlock works, you can run um, a Maligos combo that will sometimes, you know, like he won one of his games with just 18 damage to the face from two soul fires. Um, and, uh, and I played around that in a way that I like, I didn't even know that he had Maligos in the deck, but I was like, I wonder if he has Maligos in the deck. And if he does, I could lose right here. So instead of making the offensive win the game play, I'm going to make the defensive don't lose to his Maligos combo play. And that ended up winning me the game because he couldn't combo me out, which was like, which was very cool. I also had probably one of the most insane board states I've seen in my entire life. Uh, front of the front of the cast, Raylana, um, was playing a big demon demon hunter deck which is similar to the ripper warrior deck in that it wants to play these big fat fatty big fat demons right and um and a card called pit commander which says at the end of the turn summon a uh summon a demon from your deck she had actually discovered a pit commander played the first pit commander which pulled the second pit commander out of the deck and then that pulled the third pit commander out of the deck which then you know like and so it was like 60 mana worth of stats on her side of the board and then i played um dimensional ripper which got me archmage vargoth which is not a big deal archmage vargoth is a four mana card he's a four mana two six that says at the end of your turn uh cast a copy of a spell that you played this turn but if you play dimensional ripper into vargoth you will then rip twice at the end of your turn because you will have two Vargoths on the board and each one will cast one instance of Dimensional Ripper um, which ended up getting me, you know, my own set of 10, 10 mana cards on the board. Uh, and it was just like the most like fucking gigantic complicated board, board state of all time uh, in Hearthstone which was like super fun and like that's the kind of stuff that's like crazy I guess about Hearthstone. But it was very fun. Uh, I'm very excited for the expansion to be coming out later this week. It comes out on Thursday. Um, to crack all of my all of my cool Skullamance cards, but we talked about that last week. So uh, fill me in. What 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 have you been What have you been up to? What have you been playing? Um, mostly just Ghost of Tsushima, which is an excellent game. How um, many hours have you sunk into it? Do you know? I'm not sure off the top of my head. It hasn't been like excessive, excessive because you know real life gets in the way in various sundry ways. Um, but uh, uh, I'm almost at the end of Act Two. Um, and I've just kind of, like, been, like, hard-clearing the map. Um, and it's not, like, super painful or anything. The writing, it ebbs and flows, but, like, the main supporting cast is very good. And the the game is still beautiful. Um, and there's some really fun things to do. Like, um, they introduced a new difficulty level because the hard was a little bit too easy. Um, and I've, oh, really? I've, I've upped myself to that level. That was the common complaint. Um, okay. Um... And so, one of the best things about this game is you have these duels, and they're like, like literally, you face down with another another character, and you fight them in like a one on one sword fight, and they're kind of like few yeah. and far between. Um, and they, oh my god! Uh, yeah, and it works really <laughs> well. Um, the The thing is, is if you have too, if you go into the fight with too many, uh, too much resolve, which is basically kind of like your, your resource, you can spend it on various things. They're a little bit too easy, but, like, uh, yesterday I played through a couple of, like, I think they're, like, the bigger fights, and I don't want to spoil them for anyone, but um, I managed to just, like, kind of stumble into them with no resolve, and that made them super hard and super satisfying to fight and win. Um, a couple of the earlier ones I went in with, like, full resolve, I just kind of, like, wiped the floor with the opposite swordsman, but, like, they are just, um, they're just, like, super well done and, like, 
Um, and I hate to bring it out, but like these fights are very Dark Souls ish in nature, and that like one screw up, and you're kind of done, and you just kind of like roll them over and over again. One of these fights, I'm pretty sure, I did at least thirty times. Um, and uh, I really like that. And if you don't like that, you can dial down the difficulty. It's, they're they're much easier, but uh, um, just like supremely executed game. Um, it's and uh, it's kind of like one of those things where like the game works uh the the game is kind of like a like pinnacle of a ps4 game if that makes sense rather than um you know being anything particularly like innovative on its own right although there there is some stuff in there that's cool but like it just blends all systems together really well and uh you know you could like like the out like the cosmetics are all great right like so each set of armor has different stuff that it does and it makes you good in different ways and just like switching between them and like exploring all the color options and kind of like mixing and matching stuff and like uh you know uh some stuff i forgot to highlight last time you like literally find like these pads you sit down and you write haikus um they're like sets of three like three prompts so you, you, it's not like it's like infinite but like you know you like like write haikus and like he he waxes philosophical for a moment and then it gives you a headband and you know it's like oh this is you know very serene very peaceful very it's just a, a supremely executed game, and I can't speak highly enough of it. Um, and I highly recommend any of you out there with a PS4 uh, get it and play it. Um, and if you that don't, maybe consider getting one. Uh, but uh, you know, it's uh, it's it's a great game, and that has taken the lion's share of my time this week. Uh, Very cool. Have you um, have you been? Uh, like watching anything or like movies or anything along those lines? No, just because I've been I so obsessed. With, nope. <laughs> I've, I've been too obsessed with Tsushima. Um, Fair enough. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, just like you know, what are we talking? Like I, 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 I've gone on a, I went on a hike this week, which was nice. But you know, <laughs> yeah. um, top notch content, you guys. Yeah. Um. So interestingly, uh, we also played uh, another round of Star Wars D and D, um, uh, for a while. Which was, or not for a while, um, but like in the for the first time in like two or three weeks or something like that. Uh, which I was GMing, which centered around the party, uh, like finding a you know like finding a chemist. I actually really liked this session quite a bit. This might have been this might be one of my favorite sessions. Even though the part of part of, part of it I don't like because um, this is kind of like well trod territory in a way for like us. We've kind of done sessions like this a couple of times in a row. Uh, or not in a row, but a couple of times. Like, I really liked the session uh, where we hunted down Wall River's bad guy because it, like, did a lot of new stuff. We were doing vehicle combat. It was out in the woods um, versus in, like, the kind of city or whatever. Uh, but this one had, like, a really great flow to it, and I just felt like we were all kind of, like, in the in, in the zone in a weird way. Um, I don't know. What did, you, what, what did you think? What were your thoughts? I thought, I thought like, I thought once it got going, like, once we went to uh, the exhaust port... Um, I think things really, really started rolling in a good way. Um, I always find in the beginning of these sessions that, like, I, I'm kind of hesitant to kind of, like, steamroll. Like, I'm, I'm trying not to steamroll over people, but, like, uh-huh. sometimes that is, like... Yeah. And Jad asks the party members if they have any thoughts, and they don't. Um, I think uh, I think Wallruber is pretty good about having thoughts, but he wasn't around this week. And, uh, and like, I think, I think V maybe um, can do it well, but, like... Um, sometimes it just kind of feels like Jad's calling all the shots, and I feel a little bit bad about that. But it's it's fun regardless. It's okay when Jad and Omega get to be together. We'll 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 
because I, I also like doing I also like doing that in a way like you know kind of coming up with like the plans or whatever but uh, but I do kind of like sense that hesitation part of it feels like my fault in a certain sort of way because like a lot of the time I want to prompt you know what I mean like I, I like I, I, I don't want to like railroad you guys but like realistically at the end of the day this story started at the ruins of the drug den that got blown up right and I could have just done this thing where like I said all right he gives you the location of the ruins and says the very first thing that you should do is fly to the city of Tofin go to the ruins and see what you can dig up there and you guys just kind of would have fast forwarded to that part because that's really where the decision points came in right where it's like we're going to do a little bit of investigating we're going to see what we can find what are the different you know what I mean what are the different leads that we can put together um uh in the what are the different leads that we can put together in the like the investigation and like where do we want to go from here like there is an alternate path for where you guys went last night um where you could have gone to the refinery there was a refinery that was kind of like established in the there's a, a refinery that was established in the investigation process, but you opted to go to the strip club first, which was, you know, which was fine, obviously. But, like, there's, a, there's a, like, an alternate sort of history where you go to the refinery first and you get a, a different sort of, like, window into that story. Yeah, and, and I, I don't think that's too much on you. It's just kind of, like, some people just kind of want to, like, go along for the story. And, and you know, I, I definitely enjoy the kind of aspect where we get to kind of uh, make our decisions uh, it, yeah. just, it just you know sometimes takes a little bit uh, a little bit to get it rolling. Um, in other words, I thought it was great, um, even though it ended up super short. Um, it was super fun. Like they, they, like all the sessions always feel about the same length to me, um, even if they're like you know like last night was like three hours and sometimes they go to like six. I don't feel that difference a ton if that makes sense. Yeah, uh, no, I I absolutely uh, understand. That last night's story actually felt better to me. I feel like a lot of the time I rush the endings because we're going too long. Um, and this one was much better paced. Um, even if the ending was, like, a little less climactic. Yeah. Uh, but, like, th- this is also... I mean, we've talked about this before. This is also one of those things where I am... Uh, where I, like, want to err on the side of, um, like player not agency but like consequence in a way yeah. like i think you guys made very clever smart decisions and therefore you kind of got rewarded with not having as much of a climax like i introduced complications and problems and you had good answers to those things and therefore it was sort of smooth sailing even though it wasn't really but like you know there was no combat last night because you had good ways to avoid that um, if that makes sense yeah no, no, uh, I, 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 I am happy that it worked out the way it did. Um, I don't know. I feel, I feel like a big part of it feeling super satisfying was you telling us that this is why things worked out so smoothly. Um, otherwise, wait, that makes it more satisfying or less satisfying? More, I think. Um, okay. Yeah. Yeah, just because like it kind of like reinforces that like we we managed to get it right. Um, I don't know. That's that's, 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 that's I, feel, I feel like that's like maybe we've talked about this kind of thing before. Where like it's hard to tell if you're being railroaded or not sometimes because like you know you, you don't see the alternate tracks. If that makes sense. Oh yeah, no, I'll, I'll, yeah, definitely. This was a huge thing. Um, this was a huge thing in RP for me. Like not too long ago, I ran a whole long story, which was have I talked about this? Tonric in jail. No, no, go for it. Okay, so Tonric, who is, you know, like, my main character on Alliance side, has all this sort of history. Um, he starts off, essentially, the, the, the 
BFA expansion in prison because he uh, murdered a a bunch of criminals um, who were gonna like do something bad or whatever. But that was off. That was like obviously murder, right? And so all of his friends are there, and they're like, "Well, we don't." And he and, and then he got put essentially on death row, where um, there was like a magistrate who had the option to kind of decide his punishment, um, and uh, and like was there was indications that she was going to execute him for murdering six people, um, even if they were, you know, like, evil bad guys doing evil bad guy things sort of thing. And the 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 hook of the kind of storyline or the campaign, in a, in, a, in a sense, was, here are a bunch of Tonric's friends, he is on death row, how do you get him out, right? Like, how do you get him out of this, you know, uh, out of this sort of predicament? And there were a lot of different, like, pieces of this story, right? Like, um, people were we're trying to figure out oh like could we find a way to you know could he be a bounty hunter and these guys were all criminals maybe they had bounties on them you know like and all this other sort of stuff right um and in that storyline lasted for like almost uh like almost a year but the very end of the storyline was the, the the direction the players had chosen was um tonric essentially used to be a cop um boy this is gonna make me sound terrible okay so tonric essentially used to be a cop right and um, as a knight. And as a knight, he, it would have been legal for him to execute the criminals that he, that he murdered, right? But, he, but he's not a knight. He was, um, he was, like, excommunicated from his knightly order sort of thing. So if the players can reinstate his knighthood, then the murders retroactively become executions. He's no longer on death row. It is legal for him to kill these people. He's no longer on death row. He's fine. Right. So the whole thing was we need to find a way to make him become a knight again. And their and their direction here was to get one of Tonric's former knight pals um, elevated to become knight commander of his order. And therefore he can, you know, go into the jail cell, say, hey, Tonric, you're a knight again and everything's all good. Right. And so all of that uh, and so all of that took, you know, months and months of planning and execution you know, like this whole big scene in essentially the Senate where like the players are uh, the players are kind of like representatives on like the House floor arguing for resolutions and stuff like that. Like politics is going on. There's all this criminal stuff going on, like all these decisions. Right. But at the very tail end of the story, um, at the very tail end of the story, what happens is um, Tonric realizes that if he goes through with being knighted that like the law is a little bit weaker and he isn't willing to do that and so he he orders the other guy don't knight me let me die right it's more important that the law be upheld than for me to like than for me to like live and all of my players like fucking rioted because they had gone through this whole story you know like they got through this huge huge storyline and put in all of this work to get this guy off and they achieved their goal they figured out all right all we need to do is we got to get this guy installed as the knight commander and he's gonna he's gonna solve the problem we're gonna get tonric on death row and they do that thing and then on death row tonric says you know what i'd rather fucking i'd rather die because of like my principles than anything else now i knew the whole time 
that this is a fake out essentially this is kind of like a darkest before dawn sort of moment um where in the in the comfort of his jail cell thinking about his life and legacy and his ideals and his ideology that's the decision that tonric makes but when he actually gets up to the executioner's block and he sees his kids and he sees his friends he has a change of heart and he's like no i want to live kind of thing so it's a little bit you know like so it was like a little bit of a fake out but like that was in it, they were so mad at me friend of the podcast dude like fuck she yelled at me she was so pissed <laughs> She was like, I can't believe you fucking did this. You railroaded me and everything like this. And I, the whole time, I don't want to give away that, like, the twist ending or whatever. I was just like, you got to see how, it, you know, like, you got to see how it plays out. And I kept saying this thing where it's like, you know, sometimes you try your hardest and things just don't work out. And she was like, fuck you. You, know, like, <laughs> you piece of garbage. You know, and I do think in a certain sense that, like, that is that is a fair story to tell or whatever. Um, but then the the actual execution comes. Todrick's like head is in the block or whatever, and then he gets the and then he's like has this change of heart and he gets knighted or and and it's a big payoff. Everybody has this big relief and catharsis, right? Because he's not gonna die or whatever. Um, and afterwards, I actually broke down for them all of the decision points along the way where like things could have gone differently because there was a real version of events where like quote unquote the players would fail right um if they if they made poor decisions and uh and bad stuff happens if they didn't adapt to changing circumstances if they didn't you know if their strategies were not well you know like well thought out or whatever else like there is a version of things where they fail and tonric dies and i think that it has to kind of be a real possibility right right um but it was hilarious because as i was sitting there and explaining and kind of showing the decision web and the tree right it immediately diffused the tension because when you are a player in the story you don't necessarily see those other nodes on the decision tree right and it can definitely feel like you're being you know you were being railroaded um so yes i'm very i'm very familiar with uh, with players who are angry at the idea that they're that they're getting kind of like railroaded through the plot point. sure yeah no no and like you know to be fair to them right like if if like if you had gone through with the Baron getting executed, right? Like, then that means that nothing they did mattered, right? Like, um, in, in a sense. Uh, yeah. And that's like, you know, it's like, well, why the fuck do we bother playing? Um, mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and, like, I do feel like there is space for that in a tragic sense, right? Like, I think there is a tragedy... You know, like I, I would like, I would be more than willing to to tell a, like a tragic story, kind of like along those lines, where it's like, like you know, where the theme is. Sometimes you try your hardest and it just doesn't work out, and like that sucks. But like it's also you know whatever. Uh, but I also I don't I would not have approached it. Uh, yeah, in a I would very say similar way. Like if, like, if, it, if it's a volunteer, like the thing that voluntarily happens from the the, the player in que- or from the character in question, that's like a maybe a bridge too far. Yeah, um, you know, like uh, like I said, I would I would definitely play it differently. Like there's also I think a version of things where like. You know, you can get players on board with that sort of stuff, right? Like, a version... Part of part of this is that... And this is, like, a big thing for RP, right? Like, obviously, RP is between two people, right? So I am RPing with you, right. even if, as a GM piloting, like, NPCs or whatever. But the decision where Tonric was like, no, I don't want to be knighted. I think the law is too important. And I, you know, like, d- like, don't, like, don't get me out of this. I killed those people. I'm a murderer. And it's important that I die, right? 
um, that was made in what was effectively a short story where I was just kind of going between two characters, one of whom was the NPC and the other person was Tonric, right? Um, so it had this double thing of like, it's not like Tonric was convincing, you know, the player characters where they were like, we knighted you. And he's like, I don't want that. Right. Where he could have an argument with someone and they could respond to his points or whatever else kind of thing. He was making that argument off screen to a player in a conversation that this is also the worst part is that Tonric also then ordered the knight commander. He was like, listen, if you're going to do anything, don't tell anyone I told you to do this. Right. Because that defeats the purpose, obviously. Right. Like, I like I need to die here. You need to uphold, you know, like you need to kind of like um, uphold the it's, it was honestly like a little more complicated than that. It's this thing where if Tonric had been knighted, it would have destroyed the knightly order in it. In, and he was like, I want the I want the knights to outlive me or whatever. And so he was like and so he had to like it also had to be a secret. So not only were they not in the room when the decision was getting made, but the decision was getting made and they couldn't respond to it in character because they didn't know that it happened. They could out of character read the story, but they couldn't in character change anything, which ah. is like obviously maddeningly frustrating. <laughs> so I, I sympathize with, you know, I sympathize with their anger, even if I knew the whole time that Todd was going to get out of there. Is this what um, your like tweet was about, about your spicy post? No, that one. Do you want to know about that? That one was different. That one was I piloted a major lore character. I had Baron have a conversation with Bane Bloodhoof, which is a big no-no in RP. Ah, well. But the but I, so I, the reason that that was the reason that, that was should, spicy. We might want to save that for next time. We're, we're, we're running okay. along. That that's all. But no, I, no, yeah, fair enough, fair enough. Remind me to talk about this because uh, it is actually kind of like interesting, and I think you'd be interested. All right, um, definitely. Yeah. But you know, we're 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 at an hour and a half, so. Uh, if you'd sure. like to, to email us and tell us what you think about uh, morality in games or Buddy's characters, you can email us at podcast.com or gmail.com. You could uh, follow us on Twitter and on Twitch and all the other nice places. Rate and review us on iTunes. Give us money on Patreon. Uh, and that's everything I had. Buddy, do you have anything else you want to promote? Uh, you know, I would be, if I were, if I were you, I would be really excited for all of the month of August for Akupara Games. There is a lot going on in August for us, and I'm very excited to share share with you. So just, like, you know, watch. Just, like, just like watch that space uh, is what I would say. Oof. At least four episodes of Buddy Gets Good. Uh. Uh, yeah, that next week I will be playing. So not this Friday. Last Okay, so last Friday I indeed got good, actually. I defeated – I should have talked about this in the back half. I defeated the champ for the first time ever. Nice, Brett. Um and then I started playing. Uh, have you? Did you ever play Abacus? The the like the other class that you unlock? Uh, no, I did not. Yeah, uh, I'm really bad at Abacus. <laughs> okay. uh, we'll talk about this. We'll talk about this later down the line. Um, but uh, yeah, uh, so we'll be doing new episodes. But it gets good for sure. Uh, talking about some games that are coming up. Uh, some games that we haven't talked about before. Oh boy. Um, and yeah. Yeah, no, I, uh, sounds exciting, um, and I will definitely, I can definitely recommend the VODs. Um, I don't watch the streams live because of other commitments, but uh, the VODs have been super, uh, super fun to watch. Um, although I will say, if if that the editor is listening, slow down your text crawl just a little bit when you flash text. Oh, you really? Okay, interesting. He actually asked me if it was too fast, and I said that I thought it was fine. But I'll so, pass the note. So you know, you uh, know why it's too fast? Because I watch it two times speed. <laughs> I can't read. Oh. It. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, okay, I'll pass that note along for yeah. sure. I actually need to send him the VOD uh, to start to start uh, editing. All right, well, uh, in that case, or uh, I guess with that, we could say uh, until next time, dear listeners. Until next time, loyal listeners.